and final sermon in our series on the life of David, we've come a long way since first being introduced to that young, handsome shepherd boy from Bethlehem. We watched how he was anointed and appointed as the next king of Israel. As a teenager, he decisively defeated the giant named Goliath with a sling and a stone. We marveled at how he rose in popularity and prominence, assumed the throne at the young age of 30, put down the Philistines, retrieved the ark of God, brought it back into the city of God. We watched how David demonstrated loyal love to the man named Mephibosheth, and then in turn, and then in turn how he demonstrated lustful love towards the woman named Bathsheba. Last time we saw David, he was grieving over the death of his son, Absalom. When we catch up with him today, David is in the twilight years of life. He is nearly 70 years old. You would anticipate that David will simply ride off into the sunset with the scrolling credits of the movie going up the movie screen. But even at the end of David's life, he still struggled with sin. And yet, as David struggled with sin in the twilight years of life, he handled it like a man who was chasing the very heart of God. This morning, I want you to see from this passage a very merciful Messiah. 2 Samuel chapter 24. I want to read all 25 verses in your hearing. So if you're able and willing, will you please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word as together we examine 2 Samuel chapter 24. I'll begin at verse 1. I'll conclude at verse 25. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to his king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over. May the eyes of my Lord the King see it. But why does my Lord the King want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aror, south of the town in the gorge. They went through Gad and on to Jazir. They went to Gilead, to the region of Tatim Hachi, and on to Dan Juan and around toward Sidon. Then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hibites and the Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken. After he had counted the fighting men, he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servants. I have done a very foolish thing. 
before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says, I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come upon you three years of famine in the land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of a plague in your land. Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity. And he said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I'm the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. And on that day, Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to this servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague of the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offerings and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen, paid 50 shekels of silver for them. And David built an altar to the Lord there, sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Once again... The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. The Lord incited David. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The Lord incited David. The Lord incited David. Take a census. Go to Israel and Judah. What's ironic is that this same story is recorded for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, there is a significant detour in the details of the story. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it clearly says that Satan incited David. Go take a census of all of Israel and Judah. 
In 2 Samuel, it's the Lord who incites David. In 1 Chronicles 21, it is Satan who incites David. So my question before you this morning is, who is responsible for inciting David? Is it the Lord? Is it Satan? And at some level, the answer is both. And at some level, the answer is neither. Let me explain. The author of 2 Samuel affirms the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God simply means that God is in control of all things. There is nothing that happens that's outside of his jurisdiction. Old Testament theologians speak of this as the all-causality of God. That God is the cause of all things, whether directly or indirectly, because nothing happens outside of his prerogative. Whatever he permits, he has a purpose to promote. So God is the cause of all things. So the author of 2 Samuel affirms the sovereignty of God. But the author of 1 Chronicles reminds us that God is not the perpetrator of evil. God cannot do anything wrong or wicked or unjust. So at some level, you could say that both the Lord and Satan were behind this. But at some level, you have to agree with me that it's not God's fault and it's not even the devil's fault. Because at some level, it's neither the Lord nor the devil, but it is David who got in a fit of frustration. It is David who got angry. It is David who issued the command. It is David who told Joab and the armies what to do and how to take the census at some level. This is David's fault. I think this gives us a great insight into the cesspool of sin. Because your personal sin, it's not God's fault. And you can't even say what our first parents said. Well, the devil made me do it. It's not the devil's fault. It's your fault. When you look at your life, when you take a glance at the landscape of your life, and when you come face to face with your sin, you have nobody to blame but yourself. You can't blame God. You can't blame the devil. You can't say it's your upbringing. You can't say it's not your fault. You can't say it's mama's problem, and you can't say it's daddy's problem. You can't say it was my friends. You can't say it was because of the coach. You can't say that it was because of my teachers. You can't blame anybody else but you. One of the lessons we've learned of David is that David takes ownership of his sin. David declares sin is an inside job. I'm the one to blame. At some level, all of us are like David, that we've got to come to grips with our sinfulness. We cannot blame the Lord. We cannot blame the devil. At some real understanding, this, this this is David's fault. But even with that explanation, there's more than a few of you in the crowd today who are thinking to yourselves, yeah, but let's be honest, even if it's David's fault, this doesn't sound like a big sin. He took a census for crying out loud, which simply means he counted people in his nation. He counted the able-bodied men who could wield a sword well, who could fight in the army of Israel. What's so wrong with that? I mean, we have been walking with David for 10 weeks, and we've seen David do some outrageous things against God. And if we had to rank the sins, this particular sin would probably fall low on the totem pole. He's just taking a census. What's the big deal? 
And there's nothing wrong with taking a census, is there? There are other times in Scripture where it seems to be God-ordained to take a census. Our nation takes a census every 10 years. In fact, this is the year when America will count the people living in this country. And out of all the unethical, unjust things that our government does, taking a census must not be tops on anybody's charts. It doesn't sound like a big deal, does it? He just went out and counted able-bodied men. He he just went out and took a census. What's the big deal? And my friend, it it is here in this moment that you and I have to come to this understanding that sometimes the sin that occurs in our life is not necessarily what we do, but why we do it. We can do a good thing in a bad way and sin results. It's not necessarily that what we did was wrong, but maybe the way we did it was wrong, or when we did it was wrong, or why we did it was wrong. And the end result is still sin. Let me give you just a couple of examples of that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with food. Food is not inherently good or bad, and yet we are given food by God Almighty to enjoy. And most of us could get testimony this past week, we ate enough food, maybe more than enough food. There's nothing wrong with food. But food certainly can be abused, can it? When a person eats far more than one person needs, we fall into the sin of gluttony. When we eat food without any regard, without any thought, without any remembrance of those who are hungry and in need of food, and we eat more than we need to have in a very selfish way, isn't that the epitome of sin? It's a good thing done in a bad way. Sin results. Or take, for example, sexual intimacy. Sexual intimacy is a gift that is given to God, given from God to humanity for the purpose of procreation and pleasure. And God has specifically said that this gift, this good gift of sexual intimacy is given in the confines of monogamous marriage between a biological man called a husband and a biological woman called a wife. But any time sex is taken outside of that construct, sin results I'll give you a third example there's nothing wrong with work in fact work is a good thing the Bible gives it nobility and dignity God worked for six days on the seventh day he rested in the New Testament Paul says in his Thessalonican correspondence the man who will not work he shall not eat it's not that he cannot work It's not that he can't find work, but he simply will not work. The man who will not work shall not eat. What Paul is saying there is that there's something noble about work. Yes, it's hard. That's why it's called work. Yes, sometimes you don't like it. That's why it's called work. But we work. And as Christ followers, we ought to have the best work ethic of anybody in the office. But even that good, noble thing called work can be abused, can it? So the person can become a workaholic. And work 70, 80, 90 hours a week, all under the guise of providing for the family, and all the while neglecting spouse and children along the way for maybe years at a time. And the truth of the matter is, we become workaholics because we're addicted to greed. 
because we just want to have more and buy more and use more and enjoy more on ourselves. You can have a good thing, but yet if you employ it in a bad way, sin can result. I think that's what's going on here in our passage with David. It is not that there's anything inherently wrong with a census. But David went about it the wrong way. I don't know exactly what he did that was wrong. Maybe he took this census to be able to brag about how large the army was. Maybe he took this census to see uh, just how vast he had made his nation. Maybe he did it because of pride or arrogance. Maybe he didn't follow the instructions of Exodus chapter 30 because in Exodus chapter 30, the Lord says, whenever a census is taken, every person must pay a tax of half a shekel. Oh, and maybe David just let some of his cronies skate by without paying half a shekel. Or maybe David knew what God was calling him to do and instead of trusting the Lord, he was trusting man and he said, quickly go and tell me how many able-bodied men are in our army. Regardless, it's not that what he did was wrong, but why he did it, that's where he sinned. If you think that I'm stretching the scripture just a bit, let me just focus your attention upon Joab in verse 3. Joab calls into question why David is doing this. He doesn't call into question the census. But he does say, King, I, I hope and I pray that you receive a hundred times over in the troops. But why? Does the Lord my king want to do this thing? But why? Joab is asking a critical question. King, why are you doing this? You, you may be doing a good thing, but I think you may be going about it in a poor, bad way. So why are you doing this? Joab was not just a mighty military leader, but Joab was a trusted friend. I contend to you this morning that everybody needs a Joab. Everybody needs somebody in their life who can ask the hard questions. Now ask them in a nice way. You don't have to be rude about it. Ask in a nice, polite way, but everybody needs a Joab. Joab is that relationship that can carry the weight of not only conversation, but confrontation. Everybody needs a Joab. Everybody needs somebody who can hold your feet to the fire and ask you the question, not nearly, not, not only what are you doing, but why are you doing this? Everybody needs a Joab. Just because you have a Joab, that doesn't mean that you always do what Joab tells you to do. Because in verse 4, we are told that the king's word overruled Joab's word. It's subtle, but it's significant. The king's word, not God's word. The king's word, not God's word. The king's word overruled Joab. It's not that David was saying, I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. It's not that he was standing on God's word. It was just his word. How many times in your life do you do something, not because you're standing on God's word, but just because you want to do it? Oh, that's David. In this moment, David's word, the king's word, overruled Joab's wise counsel. 
Joab was just asking the king to pump the brakes, just slow down a bit. Let me ask you, why are you doing this? But because Joab and the army commanders were under the rule of David, they did what their supervisor told them to do. They went out and they conducted the census. Once again, therein, taking the census was not a sin. It took them nine months and 20 days. They came back and they reported there's 1.3 million able-bodied men who can handle the sword in Israel and Judah combined. Verse 10. When David heard the report, he was conscious stricken. That's a powerful two-word phrase. It literally means in the ancient text that he was attacked in the heart. He was punched in the heart. He was assaulted in the heart. To me, that's a beautiful, graphic, accurate portrait of conviction. Have you ever come under the Spirit's conviction? You describe it in ways that say, my heart was heavy. My heart was broken. It's not that there's an elephant in the room, but the elephant is sitting on my chest. I feel overwhelmed. My heart is pounding out of my chest. My heart is heavy. Palms are sweaty. I just, I just, uh, I know that this is the Spirit of God that's telling me what I did was wrong, conscious, stricken. This is David. David is convicted of his sin. Once again, it's not what he did, but it's why he did it. Perhaps how he did it. He is conscious stricken. He is convicted of his sin. And immediately, he says, I've sinned against the Lord. Friends, that's not the only time or the first time that we have seen that phrase. About a year after David's sinful sexual escapade with Bathsheba, he was confronted by the prophet named Nathan. And after Nathan confronts him, approximately a year after his sinful activity with Bathsheba, it is David who then says, I have sinned against the Lord. It took David about a year to confess his sin against Bathsheba. In our story, it takes David about a second to confess his sin against God. The last 10 weeks, we have learned a lot of things about what it means to chase the heart of God. We've said that one who chases God's heart has an unwavering confidence in the Lord. You show me somebody who has unwavering confidence in Christ, I'll show you somebody who's a God chaser. Oh, we also said that a God chaser is a person who steadfastly believes that surroundings cannot shake the heart, surrender to the Savior. That David learned this as he was running from Saul, as he turned his cave into a cathedral of praise. He said, my, my allegiance to the Lord is not going to rise and fall based upon my surroundings. So David steadfastly believed that surroundings cannot shake the heart that is surrendered unto the Savior. Oh, we also learned in David's life that a God chaser is one who's obsessed with obedience. Even when you sweat the small stuff, 
It's not just that you're obedient in the big stuff, but you want to be obedient in the small stuff. You want everything in your life to put a smile on God's face and please the Lord. And all those lessons, I think, are good and, and, and accurate and worth us taking into our life. But maybe this last lesson is the best one of all. From 2 Samuel 24, you learn that a God chaser is one who reduces the lag time between conviction and confession. That's a God chaser. Somebody who reduces the lag time between conviction of sin and confession of sin. Earlier in David's life, 20 years prior, it took a year before he was convicted and confessed his sin. But now, as he's approaching the age of 70, it takes him about a nanosecond to say, I have sinned against the Lord. My question this morning is, how long does it take you to confess your sin? How long does it take you, friend, to confess your sins to God? You're convicted by your sin. You know that what you're doing, what you're thinking, your attitude, your action, you know that it's a sin against God. How long does it take you to get broken by it and confess it unto the Lord? You know what we do sometimes? We defend our sin. We explain away our sin. We sweep our sin under the carpet. We ignore our sin. We just explain it away, saying that I'm not nearly as bad as anybody and everybody else. How long does it take you to confess your sin to the Lord. What, what is the lag time between conviction of sin and confession of sin? Friend, I want to uh, suggest you this morning that whenever the Spirit of God convicts you of sin, this morning when he convicts you of sin, immediately confess that sin unto the Lord. Don't let this service be over without confessing your sins unto Christ. Don't let this day uh, set without confessing your sin unto the Lord. Where there's conviction, let there immediately be confession of sin. When a person uh, does that, they are a God chaser. They are a person who chases after the very heart of God. David said, I have sinned. The very next day, the Lord sent the prophet named Gad to see David. This is not the first time we've met Gad. We were introduced to him way back when David was running for his life from the insanely jealous King Saul. So David has known Gad for decades. Gad comes to him and says, uh, this is what the Lord says, you have one of three options. There can either be three years of famine as a consequence of your sin, or there can be uh, three months of you fleeing from your enemies as a consequence of your sin, or there can be three days of a vicious plague against the nation of Israel as a consequence of your sin. You decide which one you want, and then let me know, and I'll tell the God who sent me. Friends, that is one of the most quirky twists in any biblical story. Do you know any other story where God the Father gives his children options on their discipline? I mean, I, I don't know very many stories. I don't know other stories where God gives his children options. I know my earthly father never gave me options. I mean, he just pretty much said, boy, this is what's going to happen. 
And many times, that's how God responds. He just responds by giving us the, the justifiable consequences of our sin. But here in our story, because the relationship that David has with his God, Yahweh himself says, I'll give you a choice, one of three. Which one do you want? It says that David was churning. He was distressed. The word is to churn. It's, it's, it's to uh, just be unsettled. Do you know what that feels like? To be unsettled before the Lord? To have your, your, your insides churning because of anxiety? That's David. He says to Gad, uh, I, I, I don't know what to do except but to fall on the mercy of God. It was Chuck Swindoll who said, and if you want mercy, turn to God. If you want judgment, turn to the world. If you want mercy, the only place you're going to find it is God. If you want mercy in your life, mercy that is more, mercy that's enough, mercy that's sufficient, if you want amazing mercy in your life, then the only, way you, only place you can turn is God Almighty. And David just says, let me fall on the mercy of God. I think David said that because uh, he knew that in his life, there have been times when God should have killed him and God kept him. God should have slaughtered him, but he saved him. God should have left David for dead, but God loved David unconditionally. I think David came to this conclusion. He understood the severity of his mess and the sufficiency of God's mercy. Are you at that place today? Do you know the severity of your mess and the sufficiency of God's mercy? Do you really know the severity of your mess? And most of you are saying, well, I, I know I make mistakes, but is it severe? I mean, I know I do things I'm not supposed to do, but is it a severe mess? Yes, our sin is a severe mess before God. Do you know the severity of your mess? And if you are a child of God, you not only know the severity of your mess, but you also know the sufficiency of his mercy because his mercy has been flanking you all the days of your life and cleaning up your mess-ups. I don't know how many in the house but can testify today that God should have killed me, but he kept me. God should have slaughtered me, but he saved me. I have thoroughly messed up and his mercy is sufficient. Is there anybody in the house? So David just says, let me fall on the mercy of God. The people of God knew what it was to suffer a famine. David knew what it was to run from enemies. God sent a plague. It's a plague that took the lives of 70,000 people. From Dan to the north to Beersheba in the south, 70,000 people died. And, and God was grieved because of his calamity. Friend, don't ever think that God is unmoved by the suffering of people. Don't ever think that God has a cold shoulder towards your suffering don't ever think that God somehow enjoys the judgment and the consequences. No, God was grieved because of this calamity. It got to the point where the death angel was approaching Jerusalem. And when David saw how people were 
dying on the spot because of his sin. He said to the Lord, why are you doing this? They are just sheep. Why don't you inflict your punishment against me and my family? The Lord sent the prophet Gad one more time, said to David, go to the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, and there offer a sacrifice. So David got all of his stuff. He gathered some men. He went outside the city of Jerusalem. He went on the hill to the threshing floor of Aruna. When Aruna saw that the king was coming, he was a little bit unsettled himself. He went out, he bowed down low, he said, why is my king come to visit me? And David said, I have come to purchase this land from you so I can build an altar, offer sacrifices unto God in the hopes that it will please him and this plague will stop. Aruna said to his king, well, if that's why you're here, take it, it's yours What's mine is yours. And the king said, no, no. I will not sacrifice anything unto the Lord that doesn't cost me something. So I'm going to worship the Lord with all I've got. I'm going to worship him and it's going to cost me something. So he bought the oxen. he, He built the altar. He paid about 50 shekels of silver. He offered that sacrifice. And it was pleasing unto the Lord. And the plague stopped. David went outside the city of Jerusalem. He went on a hill outside the city of Jerusalem. And when David went outside the city of Jerusalem and climbed up on a hill, he offered a sacrifice A sacrifice on a hill outside Jerusalem that was pleasing unto the Lord. A sacrifice on a hill outside Jerusalem that was pleasing to the Lord that prompted God to declare to the angel enough, which another translation could be, it is finished. David went outside of Jerusalem. He went up on a hill. He offered a sacrifice, a sacrifice that was sufficient, a sacrifice that God enabled to declare it is enough. And by that sacrifice, it is God who reversed the curse of the plague. Oh, my friends, I just can't help it. For when I see David in this last portrait and picture of his life, When I see David in the final chapter of 2 Samuel, I am reminded of another son of David who went outside the city of Jerusalem. This other son of David, the God-man himself, climbed up a hill. And on that hill, not only did he offer the sacrifice, he became the sacrifice. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus endured our hell so we could enjoy his heaven. The one who is in infinitely innocent, became grotesquely gross, so that we who are grotesquely gross may be declared infinitely innocent in God's sight both now and forevermore. And Jesus, the son of David, Jesus, the God-man, went outside of Jerusalem. He climbed up on a hill. He offered a sacrifice, a sacrifice that was pleasing unto the Lord, a sacrifice that was so pleasing unto the Lord that Jesus, the God-man, simply declared, it is finished. Enough is enough. 
and it reversed the curse of sin in your life and in mine. So the Apostle Paul can declare in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I just declare today that Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe sin and left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. I want somebody to hear me to praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. His name is Jesus. He is the son of David. He came to offer sacrifice that is acceptable in the sight of God. This is Jesus. And one of the last portraits we see of David, he is chasing God's heart. He reduced the lag time between conviction and confession. And this morning I wonder, is there anybody who needs to chase the heart of God today? Anybody who longs to be a Christ chaser. The Bible says anyone who comes to me will not be denied. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Is there anyone here who you understand that you've made a mess of things Maybe you've lived life up to now rejecting God, rejecting his word, saying it's a crutch, it's a myth, it cannot be true. But whatever path you've been on, let me just ask you, has it been working? Or would you agree with me that life's a mess? And today, maybe for the first time, friend, you realize the severity of your mess there's no way you can get to God on your own. And the only way for you to get to God is to believe that God came to you. And he died on the cross for your sins. His dead body was placed in a grave and on the third day, he was raised from the dead. You say to yourself, but pastor, I don't, I don't have a God-chasing heart. Well, God is in the business of heart transplants because David got one of those. Create within me a pure heart, O oh God. Give me a heart transplant. Do in my life what only you can do. Because your mercy is enough. Your grace is sufficient. Your love is unconditional. And maybe there's somebody here, and let's just be honest, you've been playing church long enough. You've been playing around with church. You've just been here because you're supposed to be here. But when you really come down to it, you know that you do not have a growing personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I were to ask you if today you breathe your last breath, where would you be? You would have to honestly confess, I don't know. I hope I'd go to heaven, but I really don't know. You may be like some people yesterday who said to me, I really try to be a good person. I try to treat people well. And at the end of the day, treating people well won't get you into heaven. The only thing that will get you into heaven is your personal belief and relationship with Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe today you need to accept him as Lord. Maybe there's some people here that are Christ chasers. You're chasing the one who's chasing after you. You have a heart for God. Keep it up. 
Keep it up. Keep chasing hard after God. Every day that God gives you breath, you keep chasing after him. There's nothing greater than to be a God chaser. There is nothing greater than to thirst after the one who thirsts after you. You continue to chase hard after God. We're going to offer an invitation. I'm going to stand down here. If you need to come and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the first note that struck, the first word that we sing, you come. There may be somebody here and you are a believer, you are a Christian, but you are praying for your son. You're praying for your daughter. You're praying for your husband. You're praying for your wife. You're praying for that coworker. You're praying for that family member because you know that individual is not one who chases the heart of God. And maybe you just want to come and pray. The altar's open. Maybe you need to come and join this church. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do today, I want you to chase hard after God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for paving the way for us to get to you. It is only through explicit faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that you went outside Jerusalem and that you climbed a hill, that you offered a sacrifice that was sufficient for our sins, that reversed the curse so that we could be at home with you, innocent in your sight. So, Lord, today we declare that we need you. If there's someone here who needs you for salvation, let them come. Someone here who needs you in prayer, let them come. Somebody here who needs to join the church, let them come. Let us be obsessed with obeying you. In Jesus' name we pray.